All right, just real quick, I want to take a survey. If any of you have ever heard of this particular event or this thing, because I've never heard of it until the last couple of weeks. How many of you have ever heard of a golden birthday? Raise your hand. Okay, so, okay, about as many of you as I heard of it. A lot of you are in the dark. A uh, golden birthday is when uh, your your age correlates with the date of your birthday. So if you, your birthday's on the 15th and you turn 15, this is a golden birthday. So my daughter Lily turned 18 today, and it's the 18th. Happy birthday, Lily. So... So Lily tells me, she said, Dad, you know, it's my golden birthday. I'm like, okay. So she goes, you know what you got to do? I'm like, what? She goes, you got to buy me like gold earrings, gold bracelets, gold. That's what they do on the golden. I'm getting ripped off, I think. I don't know if that's what the golden birthday is all about. All I know is it's costing me more money for this golden birthday. So if you're, um, you know, it, it, you're, you're out of, if you're over 31, sorry, if you've just found out about it. So. You know, you got to be under 31 to do that. So uh, just happy birthday, Lily. Um, we're in this series uh, going through the, the book of Judges, and we've been in it all summer. And what's interesting, first of all, Pastor Brandon did a great job last week, didn't he? Uh, really thankful for Pastor Brandon. Handled it really well. I, I gave him, like, the hardest judge, the hardest leader, Jephthah. And he was complaining about it for months. Like, really, Pastor Bart? No, I'm just teasing. So I said, man, if you can handle Jephthah, you can handle anything in the Word of God. So he preached it well, spoke it well. Um, and so we're going through the book of Judges. And basically, Judges is this, it's this time, it's this very difficult time in Israel's history. So they're coming out of this oppression from Egypt for over 400 years. And God delivers them into this promised land, Canaan that he has for them. And he says, listen, I will drive out the enemy. I will do everything for you. I'm going to establish you as my people in this part of the world, in this land. And if you obey me, I will bless you. And he go, but, but the, the problem is, is the enemy. The enemies live in the land and God knew, knows the proclivity of our heart. And the proclivity of our heart many times is to do things that we shouldn't be doing. And that's exactly what Israel ended up doing. They began to serve the gods of the enemies of that particular land in Canaan, which really destroyed their relationship with God. And so God was telling them, listen, the enemy's going to be there. I'm going to drive them out and I want you to drive them out. But if you don't, they're going to be a constant sore spot. They're going to be your Achilles heel. They're going to, uh, you know, you're going to, you're going to fall prey uh, to their gods. And, and really at the end of the day, it wasn't, it, it, it wasn't so much that God is saying, listen, I, I don't want you to do these things. He didn't want them to do these things, but, but God said, listen, I want to have a relationship with you and nothing can stand in my way. If you allow anything to get in the way of our relationship with you, it will, it will ruin the blessing and the relationship that I desire to have with you. See, it was more than just God taking to this promised land and then setting up all these rules and regulations. They don't do this, don't do that. It was really God says, I'm going to take you because I have a plan for this nation. And my plan is from these tribes of Israel is going to come the savior of the world. And so God is trying to teach his people about what it means to have a relationship with him. And so what happens is they get into the promised land, but they don't drive out the enemy. They begin to serve these other gods and, and they're oppressed because of sin and because they begin to serve these other gods. And so what happens is there's this cycle and I have this cycle of, 
I, I have it for you here on the screen, the cycle of, of the issues that, that they had. And, and let me just read this first verse, and then I'll show you the cycle of their problems. Um, Judges 13.1 just basically spells out perfectly what, what happens here. And, and so what happens is they cry out to the Lord, and God sends a leader or a judge to deliver them. And so this leader would come and God would raise him up and then they would deliver him from the enemy and then they would live in peace. But as long as that judge was alive, they were fine. The minute that judge died, that leader died, they went right back into the same problem again. And basically Judges 13.1, we're going to be in Judges 13 uh, today. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there. We're going, to, we're going to run through this today and we're going to talk a little bit about Samson today and then we're going to talk about more about Samson next week. But this, this just basically sums up the whole book of Judges. When it says, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. 40 years under the oppression of the Philistines. And really the Philistines for years to come is just going to be the worst enemy against them. They're just going to constantly be a sore spot to them. And so this is what sums it up. Is basically they did evil in sight of the Lord. So let me show you the circle here. Here's the circle, you know, here's the, 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 the circle of not, you know, not the wheel of fortune, but the wheel of misfortune here, okay? So, you know, they turn on the Lord and then God gets angry and then they're oppressed by their enemies and the people cry out in repentance. Then salvation comes through a chosen judge that God raises up. We're going to talk about Samson today. Many of us know about um, Samson, and then there's peace for that time. And as soon as that judge dies, they go right back into the same, same issue. And so what I want to look at today, before we jump into Samson, I think we have a total misunderstanding of the person of Samson and the story of Samson. Everything about the story of Samson hinges on God's calling of Samson before he was born. And what God's going to do is God's going to call Samson and he's going to have a conversation. He's going to come and speak to his parents. And this is what we're going to talk about today. But before we jump into that, I really, I mean, you're probably thinking, why did I come today, pastor? But I'm glad that you came today because we're going to talk about, I want to talk about sin and the problem that Israel really had. What was it, was it ultimately the enemy? Was it ultimately the, the foreign gods around them that caused them to fall away? No, it was their own hearts. Their hearts weren't right before God. And so because their hearts weren't right and they weren't pursuing a relationship with God and understanding what God did for them and the grace that God poured out to them and how God delivered them from the oppression of the enemy in Egypt, what happens is when their hearts became cold, their hearts became seared. And they became, they became very desensitized to their relationship with God, which caused them to turn because of their sin and serve these other gods. And so they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so this time it's the Philistines. Before that, it was the Ammonites. And before that, it was the Amalekites. And before that, it was the Midianites. And before that, it was the Moabites. And before that, it was the Parasites. You know, it's all, all these ites. It, it's just, how many of you know sometimes, can we just be honest with ourselves this morning? How many of you know, when you boil it all down, it's really because we chose to do that. I mean, if we really boil it down, we can blame, you know, well, you know, God, this time it's the Philistines. 
You know, and then, you know, before God, it was the Moabites. And we all have these excuses that we can make. But if we're really honest with ourselves, it's really the choices that we make. It's not God's fault. It's, it's not the world out there. It's, it's what's in here. And this is where we got to get to the point to where if we're going to serve God and be obedient to God and understand the blessings that God wants to pour out on us, we got to get to the point to where it's my heart. And so Israel seems like they never learn from their mistakes and we're more like Israel than we'd ever wished we'd hope we were. We really, we really are. And so let me, just, let me just give you two things that never take a day off. Two things that never take a day off are temptation and sin. Temptation, can I get an amen? Temptation and sin never, ever take a day off. And how many would you admit, me included, that your, your tongue has gotten you into more trouble more than once? Can I get an amen? All right. It, you know, if you're not raising your hand, Nate, your neighbor, will you raise their hand for, for them? All right. Because you know it's true. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, one day you might be doing really well, and then the next day you have a bad day and, and you do something to regret. We've all, we've all been there. Temptation does not take a day off. Sin does not take a day off. And sin is so tricky. And we need to be careful that we do not cast aside behavior that is not part of God's will. And we can easily justify our behavior that is clearly in conflict with God's will and just say it's fine. And that's where our hearts get gets, gets just so... Um, severed away from the Lord because what we begin to do is begin to justify the things that that we know God doesn't want us to do. But when our hearts get seared, it's easily to believe those things that they're okay. That's what happened to Israel. It wasn't, it wasn't that God wasn't clear with them. He said, listen, I, I brought you out of Egypt. Like, like a, like a mother hen gathers her chicks around herself. I brought you out of it so I could gather you to myself and take care of you. Have I not taken care of you? Did I not pour water out of a rock? Did I not give manna from heaven to feed you? Did I ever let you down? Never. And so God has done everything to provide a relationship with us. And, and, and it, God did not want anything to come in between that relationship. And so when God speaks to Israel and says, you began to serve other gods, he speaks to it in terms of an adulterous relationship, basically saying, you cheated on me. Now listen, I want all of you to just buckle your seatbelts because we're going to go deep today, okay? I'm going to really, I want to talk about relationships, what God sees as pure in relationships. And the reason why God sets these standards for us, because I think in our world today, we're hearing a completely different message. And I think if we're not careful in the church today, if our hearts are not understanding the reason why God has established these standards, our hearts can easily be seared once again and and turn away from what God's will truly is for our lives. And this is what we can extract from the relationship, the difficult relationship that Israel had with God for so many years. So when 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 we mess up, we realize we should realize that, listen, I've offended God and I know that there's forgiveness and I can find that through Christ. But here's the thing that we see through the book of Judges. We see this phase over and over again that Israel did evil in the eyes of the Lord and they did what was right in their own eyes. 
They did what was right in their own eyes. See, maybe there was a time where someone pointed something out in your life and you had that aha moment. You're like, man, they're right. And, and, and God shows you the waywardness of your heart and you needed to make a change. And, that, and, that's, and, that's, and that's a good thing. That's what I love about the story of the prodigal son. You know, the prodigal son we see in the New Testament where he takes his father's inheritance, which basically says to his dad, I wish you were dead. You know, he takes it and he goes and he goes to Las Vegas and he blows it on all the, you know, gambling and women and just, and then he's destitute. He, he has nothing. So he goes, well, I'm just going to go back to my dad. I'm going to grovel. Hopefully he'll take me back. I'll just be one of his servants. And, and, and as the son comes back, what's amazing about that story is that the father sees him first. The father was waiting for him. And the son's just hoping, man, can I just be a servant? I'll just do whatever you want me to do. And what the father does is he restores the son. Puts a ring on his finger. Kills the fattened calf. Puts a robe on him. Lavishes his love and grace on him. See, the point of that story is that's what repentance is. And what, what God is showing us through the story of the prodigal son is, is that this is how I want to restore my relationship with you. Sin broke that relationship between the father and the son. The story is about a relationship that is now healed because of repentance. Are you hearing me, church? Sometimes we look at repentance and we think, well, that's God just beating me up and I, I don't want to feel, you know, I don't want to feel guilty and condemned and blah, blah, blah. And listen, repentance is about a change of heart. It's really what it is. It's not God just trying to beat you up and keep you in the dirt and kick you down and, and, may, and, and say, you're, you're no good. But really repentance is about a change of heart because something was broken. And through repentance, something is restored. And so what the prodigal son, the story shows us is now this relationship is now healed because of the devastation of what sin brought. That's exactly what happened with Israel because of their waywardness and their sin and serving other gods and, and, and God calling, calling an adulterous relationship. It destroyed the relationship that God desired to build with them. Listen, if you're in a relationship and you, you husband and wife and you're in a relationship with that and, and you love them, right? What keeps you faithful? A piece of paper that says you have a marriage license? What keeps you faithful is the commitment that you made to that person. See, that, that, that's, what, that's what drives your heart is your love and your commitment. You made, you, made a, you made a covenant with them to give them everything, to be there for them, to love them. That's what drives that relationship. That's what God desired with Israel. He, had a, he, he formed a covenant with them to say, I will be your God and I will never leave you or forsake you that nothing can separate you from my love. See, a marriage is not a contract. A marriage is a covenant. Covenant language speaks these words, I will never leave you or forsake you. A contract says this word, I'll do this if you do that. And so how many times do we get in that kind of relationship 
or that kind of argument. Say, well, look at all I've done for you. And then we place that guilt and that combination on the other person. But how many know that that relationship's not going to go very far if it's built on a contractual thing? But if it's built on a covenant, it says, I'll never leave you or forsake you, for better or for worse, for rich or poor, in sickness and in health. What are you doing there? You're making a vow. It's a covenant that you're making. That's what God did with Israel. And they broke the covenant that God wanted to establish with them by serving other gods. So in other words, their behavior was acceptable in their own eyes. They didn't even realize what they were doing was evil. They thought it was right in their own eyes. And this is what's so bothersome to me is that Israel wasn't thinking, I knew this is evil or wrong, but I'm going to do it anyways. They thought what they were doing was completely acceptable. Evil in God's eyes and doing what I think is right teaches us about the deceptiveness of sin. That's how deceptive sin can be in our lives if we're not careful and we're not, we're not repenting. And so evil in God's eyes and doing what I think is right teaches us just basically that sin blinds us. Tim Keller does a great job explaining this about the truth of sin. And so I, I want to look at the truth of what really sin is and, and why it ultimately destroys our relationship with God. It's not so much about just doing, doing the do's and not doing the don'ts. And we always look at sin as the big things. Like, okay, I, I don't do all these bad things, so I think I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. But really, listen, sin is so much more than that. It's stepping out of what God has for us and what his will is for our lives. And it's ignoring God's voice into our heart on everything in our life. Listen, anything can become sin. My hobby, it could be a good thing, but it can become sin. It, 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 we can take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing. That's all an idol is. It, it's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's just taking a good thing and make my. My kids, as much as I love my kids, I can idolize my kids and that can become sin in my life because I put them over the Lord. Does that make sense? See, that's where we need to be careful with our hearts and our lives. So here's the truth about sin. Sin may not violate my conscience. Amen? It may not. Or, or personal standards, but rather it consists of violating God's will for us. So in my own eyes, I may not think what I'm doing is wrong. We may lie to ourselves and say, well, this is right because my heart feels right. I remember um, watching a very difficult documentary and um, they were discussing uh, Nazi Germany and um, how could they do the things, not only the horrible concentration camps, but just... Um, doing things that were just evil to people. And in the documentary, they spoke to a curator of a museum where doctors, doctors did experiments on those who were disabled and the horrible things that happened there. So the interviewer was asking the curator of this um, museum of these horrible things because they never wanted people to forget these things that happened. We don't want to repeat history, especially the horrible things that have happened. And the interviewer asked the curator if what they did, if what the doctors did were evil. And she said... It wasn't up to her to decide. 
See, this is why, listen to me closely. This is why we can't define what sin is and isn't. We can't define sin in our own eyes. Sin becomes relative to the person you're asking. And that's why God establishes something in his word for us to show us this is what it is. This is what it means to go against my will because God defines it for us because he is our creator. It's something, if, if something's not evil because the majority says so, I mean, is that what it is? Well, as long as everybody agrees, let's have a vote here. And if we don't think it's evil, then it's not evil. This is what gets us into trouble. And so the Bible has the answer for us to show us this is how God designed us. This is what God wants for us. This is the best for our relationships. And so the truth about sin is that sin violates, ultimately violates our relationship with God and his will for us. And so basically Jesus, when he's asked the question, what are the most important commandments? He boils them down to two. All 613 boils them down to two. And what does he say? Love the Lord your God, other heart, mind, strength, and soul. And he goes, and likewise do what? Love your neighbor as yourself. See, if we're loving God with everything we have and we're loving our neighbor, guess what? We're not going to murder. We're, we're not going to, we're not going to, uh, you know, steal and all those other commandments. See, see, these commandments are basically God establishing his relationship with us and how we are to have a relationship with one another. See, sin violates that relationship that God ultimately has with, with us and him and our relationship with one another. And ultimately, if we look at our relationships and the things that go wrong with our relationship, it boils down to, to my selfishness or, or, or sin. And so the truth about sin is it violates our relationship with God. God doesn't want that thing to come in between a relationship that he has with us. And that's why the truth of sin is that sin is always deceptive. It always lies to us. It always twists things around. And so they did what was right in their own eyes. And basically they were out of touch with God. And so you don't have to feel guilty about something in order to understand if it's sin or not. Because many times you won't feel guilty about it or we'll just do something. And that's the way Israel, well, we don't feel guilty about it because they were so out of touch with God and that relationship with God that they just didn't feel guilty about it. And that's why we have God's word. It takes the feeling out of it. It gives us God's desire for us and what his will is for us. Okay, so here's the hard part of the message. Are you guys ready? Let's make it practical to where we live. So here, here's, I think we've, we've got to define what it means. Because I think we live in a world today where it's like, okay, what, what is sin? What, what, is, what, what are things that can violate our relationship with God? So I'm going to hit the hot button issue today, okay? I'm just going to jump right into here. Are you ready? Let's just, are you okay? You guys ready? Let's dive into it today. Um, Paul speaking to the Thessalonians and they listen many of the churches that Paul spoke spoke to lived in a very immoral culture so Paul saying you want to know God's will you, you want to have a right relationship with God and not allow the culture and and what's going on in the culture to infect your own hearts he goes this is what you need to do so here's what Paul says in first Thessalonians 4 3 he says it is God's will that you should be sanctified now, now, what does the word sanctified mean? It means to be set apart. He, set apart unto God. 
And so then he gets very specific. He says that you should avoid sexual immorality. Okay, so I'm going to define what that means for you today. I'm going to make this clear as I can to you today on what God meant. Because why is God, why is this so important to him that we have purity in our relationships? Because I know some of you sitting here today, you may be thinking, Pastor, this is so yesterday and so old school. Are you kidding me? But I want to explain to you the best way I can why God desires our relationships to be pure. And, and how, why he desires that our thought life be pure, even though we will struggle. But that, that God wants us to have a sensitive heart towards our struggles so that we can constantly give it to him. So he's constantly purifying us. Can I get an amen? It doesn't mean we're never gonna have another struggle. It just means in my struggle, I can give that to the Lord and I wanna keep my heart sensitive to him so he keeps purifying me, amen? Okay, so, so let me explain this. What is sexual immorality? Let me, because people think, okay, what does that actually mean? Well, it's the Greek word pornea and it's where we get the word pornography actually. And, and, it's, and it's a term that, in the Greek, that means fornication or any sexual union outside of God's covenant plan of marriage. Plain and simple. Okay, that, that's what it means. So, so here, let, let, me, let me drill down here and, and give you the why behind the standard. Because I know in today's culture, we're like, really? You know, that's out of touch, Pastor. This is where, you know... But let me give you the reason why. The oneness of a husband and wife symbolizes the covenant. There's, there's a covenant that, that God desires to have with us that we make before God. The union of a husband and a wife symbolizes the covenant that we've made before God. And so what was happening with Israel by turning to other gods, they were breaking that relationship with God. That covenant that God, the oneness that God had with them. So when we, when we look at marriage, marriage symbolizes the oneness that we have with God. And God doesn't want anything to come between that relationship that would cause it to be impure or unsanctified. He wants, that, he wants those relationships to be pure. And so Jesus, what he does is he quotes Genesis when he talks about marriage And he says this, he says, a husband shall leave his father and mother and literally cling or unite with his wife. And the two shall become one physically, emotionally, spiritually. They're going to become one and no longer two, but one. What God has joined together, let no man separate. That's a beautiful definition of God's plan and and God's will for marriage. Sexual intimacy out of marriage is out of God's will for this reason. God doesn't want anything to come between that relationship. And when we turn to another, we cause that relationship to become impure. So whether it's with another person or it's with my mind that I'm feasting on other things that I'm not giving to uh, my spouse, we cause that to become impure And God says, when I join two people in the covenant relationship of marriage and I bring them together in one, it's symbolic of us becoming one with Christ. And what sin does is it separates that relationship. 
and sin destroys that relationship. Listen, listen to me real closely. If you're, if you're single out there today, listen to me real close. Or if you're married, we've got to keep pure in our thought life and so on and so forth. But listen to me. Listen, God's not trying to be a killjoy. And some of you may be thinking, Pastor, that ship has already sailed. That water is way under the bridge. But let me, let me just encourage you to tell you that there's restoration in Christ. That even though I made wrong decisions and I, and I, and I bought, you know, what the world thought of a relationship, I, I bought that lie. Here's what's wonderful about a relationship with Jesus Christ, that he restores us. And that then he causes us to think in new ways. Listen, I'm not saying that every marriage in here will be perfect because you say, okay, well, okay, I'm going to do it the right way. And I'm, uh, I'm going to wait. And I'm going to do it. Some ways. Listen, how many know it takes work? It takes work. Somebody's going to get in trouble out there for that one, okay? It takes work. But listen, that's where the sanctification process comes in. That we serve each other, that we love each other through those difficult times, just as Christ loves us through our difficult times. But God doesn't want anything to break that relationship and that oneness. And that's why the marriage relationship is symbolic of our relationship with Christ and the oneness that we have with Christ, that nothing would break that relationship. Um, I read a really a great article and explained it this way. It says, another reason sexual sin is such a big deal is that it destroys the picture of unbreakable, of the unbreakable covenant God has with his people. The Bible uses marriage as a metaphor to describe the covenant relationship Jesus has with his bride, those whom he has bought with his own blood. God loves us so much that he wants nothing to come in between our relationship with him. And if we truly love our spouses, we don't want anything to come between that relationship with them, even through the difficulties and the struggles that we have. That what we're doing is we're fighting for our vows that we made and the covenant that we made. And God fights for the covenant and the vow that he made with you through the precious blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And so that's the good news for those who maybe haven't followed God's will and error of their life, or maybe you're new into Christianity, you're coming into this whole thing. The good news is um, maybe you did things in your own eyes and you thought they were right and you thought, oh, okay. And now you're thinking, man, I'm starting to understand God's word and his will. And I'm like, oh man, I made a lot of mistakes in my past, but this is where we can find forgiveness and grace from God through his son, Jesus Christ, and come into God's will for our lives. Even when we made mistakes, there's forgiveness and, and God covers us from those through the precious blood of his son, Jesus, and his sacrifice. Amen? That's, that's the hope that we have. And so Israel didn't see their oneness with God. They didn't see it as broken in the way they were serving other gods. And so this is where I want to end I spent a lot of time there, but I hope, I hope that helps some of you here today. Um, for some of you that are struggling with that, just let God speak to your heart in that way. Um, but but here's, here's where I want to kind of land the plane today. Um, because this is exactly what God does with Samson's parents. When he speaks to them about a deliverer that he wants to rescue Israel. And so Samson's calling to rescue Israel from the Philistine oppression comes before he's even born. 
And so once again, Israel needs a rescuer. And this is where Samson comes into the picture. And I believe the story of Samson is so much more than about a strong dude taking down a lot of people. It's so much more than that. The story of Samson is all about the way God desires to relate to us. And and we can completely misunderstand the story of Samson because Samson's birth and the instructions that God gives to his parents are the foundation for us to understand the story of Samson. So let's let's look into this. So let's continue in, in, in Judges 13. I want to read a couple passages here on the calling of Samson. So Judges 13, we're going to look at verses 2 through 5. It said, In those days, a man named Manoah from the tribe of Dan lived in the town of Zorah, His wife was unable to become pregnant and they had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Manoah's wife and said, even though you have been unable to have children, you will soon become pregnant and give birth to a son who eventually would be Samson. And so he gives her these instructions about Samson. He says, so be careful. And he gives his instructions to her too. You must not drink wine or any other alcoholic drink or eat any uh, forbidden food. You will become pregnant and give birth to a son And his hair you must never cut, for he will be dedicated to the Lord as a Nazarite from birth. And he will begin to rescue Israel from the Philistines. So as we see in the the verses that Samson set aside before his birth to be used by the Lord. And so his parents would heed the word of the Lord and raise Samson as a Nazarite. Now a Nazarite vow was usually made for a certain time And it was during a time where you're asking God for help during a critical time. But Samson's vow was really made for a lifetime. Samson was set aside by God to be used by God. And and God would place his spirit on him. And Samson would have this supernatural gift given by him to God to deliver his people. Now, I think, you know, when we think of Samson, we just think of Arnold Schwarzenegger. We think of this big, bulky, huge guy. I think Samson was maybe five foot, ten and a half and 165 pounds like me. I think that's, you know, just like when he'd come in, Phyllis was like, really? That's all you got, Israel? That's what you got? 165, what? Really? That's and, and I believe it was through God's supernatural. That's just, I just that, anyway, that's my old opinion. But we all know he had supernatural strength. So the, the, what happens is the angel leaves Manoah's wife and she accepts the word of the Lord. Now, Manoah catches this and he wants to speak to the man of God who was sent to his wife because he wants to get more details. So Manoah doesn't realize that it's just not any man of God, but many scholars believe it was the son of God himself. And so he wants to know, what do I do with this child and, and, and what the mission is? So God comes, speaks to both Manoah and his wife, and gives them no new information on what they have already been given. And so they must raise him as a Nazarite. So basically, you know, no wine, don't touch dead things, don't cut his hair, and don't listen to country music. So those are the things <laughs> that they weren't allowed to do. Sorry, but, you know, that's, that's just the way it was. Some of you are like, I'm out. I'm out. I don't want the Nazareth off. Can't listen to country music. I'm out. So here's what Manoah wants. Here's what Manoah wants. Manoah wants more rules and regulations, but God doesn't give him any more. Instead, what God does, he doesn't give him this more rules, regulations. What God says, I'm going to give you something greater than just that. And so what God does is he shows Manoah a revelation of himself. 
And so Manoah is asked by the angel of the Lord to make a burnt offering to the Lord. And so Manoah does, and this flame goes up to heaven, and the altar uh, that burnt up, the angel goes up in this flame towards heaven. It's a pretty cool thing that happens. And so God, what he does is he shows Manoah his glory. And then before he sees that, he, he, he wants to know more. And so he asks for his name. And, and Judges 3.18 says this, the angel of the Lord says, why do you ask my name? The angel of the Lord replied, it's too wonderful for you to understand. And so God tells Manoah, you would not understand how wonderful my name really is. It's beyond anything you can even comprehend. But, but God does something. He, he wants to show Manoah. God comes near to Manoah and he comes near to us that, that we actually might see his goodness. God wanted to give Manoah something more than just a bunch of rules and regulations and this is what you're going to do. God wanted to do something so much greater. See, my prayer for you and my prayer for my kids is I want them to know God. All the rules in the world cannot do that. See, God knew something about our hearts as he has this conversation with Manoah. God wanted to give himself to Manoah first. See, all the rules and regulations can't do that. See, the rules will not make us fall on our face before God. His presence will. See, see, that's the difference. See, Manoah's like, okay, give me all the instructions. You know, tell me what I got to do. And, and, and it becomes this mechanical mind thing. But God says, I got to have your heart. I want you to know my presence. I want you to know who I am. I want you to see my glory. That's what's going to change your life. So God shows Manoah and his wife his presence. And, and he says, my name may be too wonderful to understand, but I will show you and you will actually experience me. How many know that when you're, that's why I think it's so important that we come together in corporate worship because we can experience God. We can hear from his word or maybe there's something we sing in the worship song that just speaks to our heart. That's why it's important that we're reading God's word on our own in our own personal time with God and praying because there's going to be times where you're going to experience the Lord. You may experience the Lord through someone else speaking something or sharing something. You hear it and you experience it. You're like, man, that, that's the Lord. And God says, yeah, I, I, guess what? I love you. I care for you. And I want to speak to you. And I want to show you things in your heart and your life. I want you to experience my glory and know that I am good. Not just this cerebral head knowledge of that, but I want you to experience here in your life that you know me. And so he shows him his presence. And I love Judges 3.20. It says, as the flames, talking about the, when he makes the altar for the Lord. And so Manoah obeys. And this is what happens. I love it. And he says, as the flames from the altar shot up, Towards the sky, the angel of the Lord ascended in the fire. And when Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. They saw the glory of the Lord and they began to worship. That's what God wanted from them. That's what God wanted them to experience. Tim Keller says, we think we need rules but we need to know God. 
God does not and will not give us a guidebook for every twist and turn, every doubt and decision in our lives. He gives us something much better. He gives us himself. See, God was teaching Manoah something very important. The best thing you can ever give Samson is me. Not a bunch of rules. Yeah, he's going to be a Nazarite. We're going to learn next week that Samson was not the epitome of following the Nazarite rules. He was a train wreck. Listen, what we're going to see at the end of Samson's story is that he never really seeks God, never really calls out to the very end. See, my heart for you is this. The reason why God wants our relationships to be pure, the reason why God doesn't you know, want us to give in to these things that could harm us and hurt us is because he wants a relationship with you. He wants your heart. He wants to give himself to you. And when you find God's presence in your life, guess what? What's going to follow is a life that wants to be obedient to the Lord. That doesn't mean we're, always, we're not going to make mistakes or we're not going to struggle uh, with things in our lives. But what it does mean is when God can have our heart, we can be honest with the Lord and say, God, I'm struggling in this area of my life and I need your help here. And God understands and he will help. And he will help you through that struggle. You don't have to be alone. There's other people that struggle too. And you say, would you pray for me? I'm struggling with this today and I need, I need God's help. That's what God wants. He wants your heart. He wants the sensitivity of your heart to know him and experience him. And even in those times of your struggle, you can still know and experience God's grace and his love for you. See, what rules are going to do, they're going to drive you away from God because you feel like you messed up again. And then you feel good about yourself because you did follow all these things. Look at me, I'm doing good, I'm doing good. And then it becomes this self-righteous relationship with God that God does not desire. But God says, if you follow me because you want to know my presence, then what's going to follow through is this relationship that you have with me that's built on grace and not works. That, that when you do mess up, you're able to come to the Lord and say, God, I, I messed up. I need your help. I need the way I think to change. And then you experience his presence. That's what God wants for you. And when you experience God, you're not going to want things to get in the way of your relationship with him. You're not going to want that old life, that old person to come back and to creep in there because you know it's going to harm that relationship that God desires to have with you. So the takeaway is God didn't come to give us more rules. He came to give us himself. So when you give God yourself and God gives you himself, there forms this wonderful relationship, this covenant relationship that you understand that you don't deserve anything that God has given you. It's all by his grace and love. And out of response to that, there's this heart of gratitude and thankfulness for what the Lord has done for you. And then you begin to serve him out of a heart of gratitude and grace, a longing to know him every single day. That's where the richness of his love is unending. Listen, let's pursue God. Let's know about God. Let's know 
our teaching, all those things are good. We need to have those in our life, amen? That, that, that's our foundation so we're able to stand against the philosophies of, all, of the world. That's important for us to have good knowledge of what we believe. But above all that, God wants to know you. He wants to have a relationship with you and he's done that through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the bridge to having a right relationship with God. Our sin was the thing that broke, that destroyed the bridge between us and God. God sent his only son to repair that once again. Amen. So we're going to close in song today. And I love this song that we're going to sing. And um, I want it to be our prayer today. And so I want to pray for you today. And, and maybe you're here today and you're like, Pastor, I just, man, I'm going through a deep struggle or I just, I haven't experienced God's presence in my life. I want to pray for you that you would realize that God is just waiting for you. And Manoah, when he obeyed the Lord to take that step forward to build the altar, that's when God showed himself to him. So it's just taking that step, like saying, God, I, I want to know you. I want to hear from you. And you take those steps by allowing God to speak to you, whether it's through his word or continually coming to church and experiencing those things. God will show you his presence and how good he is. So, Father God, as we just bow our hearts before you today, we thank you for this relationship that you established with Samson's parents. And what we're going to discover next week, even though things went awry and went haywire, we're going to discover that you did not give up on Israel and that you still worked through Samson and all his flaws. Thank you for your grace, God. And you still work through us and all our flaws. So Lord, help us not to run away from you, but to run to you. For when we take that step towards you, God, you come to us like the father did to his prodigal son. And you lavish us beyond what we could ever even understand or comprehend Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your forgiveness. And I pray for every heart here that feels far away from God. Lord, I pray that they would come towards you, God, and that you would lavish them with your grace and your forgiveness as we come and we ask you to change our hearts and our lives. Thank you, Jesus, for coming. Thank you for reestablishing our relationship with God the Father. So, Lord, speak to hearts today as we come back to you. I pray that you would move in our hearts today. Lord, that you would light the fire again in our hearts today, God. That we would seek you and know that you're good. In Jesus' precious name. In Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. God is good. Let's thank him for his word today, shall we? It's good. Thank you, God, for your word. Amen.